King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was sixty cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, king, have made a decree that every man who, lives, who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar would, was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed the, those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fire furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are some times when a Bible story that you're teaching or preaching, eh, it's a bit on the confusing or, or disjointed side of things. Or maybe the passage isn't even a story at all. And in order to teach it or preach it, you have to set up pillars of understanding. 
like, here are the three points that I got out of this passage, and here are the parts of the passage where I think you can see these three points playing out. Other times, a story is so gripping and compelling that if you did anything other than just follow it the way that it's written, you would be doing both the story and yourself a huge disservice. Our story for this morning is that kind of story. What an incredible and and powerful piece of storytelling this chapter is. There's a pretty good reason that this is near the top of the list of Bible stories that our kids are taught. Not because it's a wholesome, age-appropriate story for them, as you probably noticed. It's because it can't help but keep their attention. It's a legit page-turner. As the story begins, we find that the last time that we had checked in on old Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he has been quite busy building a giant statue of gold and demanding that all people bow down and worship it. If they didn't, they would be thrown into a blazing furnace of fire. Now, as we attempt to visualize exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to accomplish here, there's a couple more details about this statue that I think would be helpful for us. First, it's 90 feet tall. Now, that seems high to me, but I have to be honest with you, I had a little bit of trouble trying to picture and, and, and think about how exactly tall that would be. So I went to an interesting sounding website called measuringstuff.com. <laughs> it's real. Don't check it now. After service, maybe you can, you can try it out. And I asked it to give me other examples of things that were 90 feet tall. Uh, it came up with two cypress trees, a blue whale, two shipping containers, seven standard cars stacked on top of each other, or two megalodons? I'm not sure that that site is as helpful as it's trying to be, (laughs) to be honest. So I decided, you know, let's just get real suburban with it. It's three raised ranch-style houses stacked on top of each other. Maybe that will be better for us as as we try to picture. But in other words, it is obnoxiously huge for a statue. The second important detail is who or what exactly is the statue of? The text isn't clear on this point. Is it of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Or is it of a Babylonian god? Or perhaps it is both. You see, in the minds of most rulers throughout most of human history, The mere fact that they have been able to grasp as much power over their world as they have meant that they were gods. And Nebuchadnezzar seems to be no exception. A Babylonian document found during this time period seems to support the idea that the statue was of Nebuchadnezzar himself because he wrote, My statue as king, 
I erected for posterity. May future kings respect the monument and respect my royal name. Now, at this point, I'm not sure that we have to go into a ton of extra detail to illustrate and convince us of the audacity of Nebuchadnezzar in creating a 90-foot-tall statue of himself that, if not worshipped properly, would result in the public slaughtering of people. I feel like that statement right there should do the trick. But I do want to dig a little bit deeper into Nebuchadnezzar's whole plan here, especially as we continue to attempt to make connections between the Hebrew exiles in Babylon and our own situation as Christians living in an increasingly secular country and world. Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold certainly represents his own quest for power and control and his very elevated view of himself. But it also represents the culture and the beliefs of Babylon as a whole. You see, the Babylonian Empire was a multi-ethnic, pluralistic nation of peoples that had been conquered by his regime. The Hebrews were far from the only people that Nebuchadnezzar had defeated, captured, and hauled back to Babylon. It was quite a melting pot society of captured peoples. And to get that many different kinds of people to be of one heart and one mind, he really needed a rallying point. He needed something that could centralize his assimilation efforts. And something visual is almost always best. For people to truly begin to feel Babylonian then, as opposed to Hebrew, Elamite, Persian, Chaldean, Aramean, and so on, he had to get them to set their eyes on him, to look up to him, to depend on him. He wanted to unite all peoples in one act. Submission to him and his image. Now notice that Nebuchadnezzar is not necessarily asking people to worship him instead of their gods. But he certainly is asking them to worship him in addition to their gods. And this is a great place to talk about cultural pluralism. It's propped up as this superior way to view the world. Look, you can believe and worship anything you want as long as you also believe in and worship me as king. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. You can do whatever you want in private as long as your public faith looks like this, like everyone else's. Pluralism certainly tries to come across as a more tolerant belief system than faiths like Judaism or Christianity. But in reality, it's not. Because pluralism can ultimately only tolerate pluralists. This is absolutely true in our world today, too. What we once heard, you can be Christian as long as you don't infringe on our rights to be secularists, 
has quickly changed to Christian beliefs naturally infringe on our rights to be secularists, and thus they must be outlawed. If you're a Christian business person, you are going to be asked to adopt the public ruthlessness of the world around you, or else you will not succeed. If you're a Christian lawyer, you are going to be asked to put your own morality aside for the sake of the legal system's morality. I know this from personal experience. If you are a Christian politician, you'll be asked to play the game the way the game's been played by everyone, believer or non-believer alike, or you will not advance up the ranks. Pluralism says, look, we're being benevolent here to allow you a secondary belief, but make no mistake, it must take second place. And when this inevitably occurs, in some area of your life, what will be the result? The only possible outcome that will not result in our harm is to submit and bow down to the golden statue to accept and reflect the worldview that we have been given. Nebuchadnezzar and our world around us demand it. They demand it or else, or else you will be eliminated. Anyone who refuses to obey, the herald shouted, will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Why so angry? Why so insistent and punitive about this? Truthfully, because their authority is illegitimate and fleeting, and they know it. Nebuchadnezzar knows this. Deep down, God's already been visiting him in dreams to let him in on this little secret. Our secular world knows this too. There is no authority that they can point to or yield to, apart from what seems good to them at the time. Doubling down on the harshness of their rule is a clear giveaway that they don't truly believe that they can keep this power forever. They should also, this should also serve as a caution to us as Christians. If we believe that the authority we follow is legitimate, and everlasting, and I hope we do. Let's not fight fire with fire. Let's strive for the peaceful and humble third way that we outlined last week, the way of Daniel, the way of Christ. As we move deeper into our story, things seem to be working out fairly well for Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it appears that almost everyone is following orders and bowing down and worshiping the image. But almost everyone is not everyone. And in Nebuchadnezzar's power-hungry world, that's just not going to cut it. Some of the Chaldeans, which is another one of the conquered people groups, 
complained to the king that some of the Jews, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have refused to serve the Babylonian gods, and they have refused to worship the statue. This throws Nebuchadnezzar into a rage, and he demands that the men be brought before him. When they do appear before the king, he gives them one more opportunity to apologize for their insolence and to bow down before the statue. But they refuse in an incredible two-part statement. First of all, they make what appears on the surface to be a bit of an incredulous claim here. They say, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will. I mean, on what basis are they making this claim? At this point in their lives, what they have seen God do is to allow the Babylonians to come into Jerusalem completely destroy it and take them away as exiles. What makes them think that God is going to be able to rescue them now, a thousand miles away from the demolished temple where he used to dwell? Is there any record of God doing anything like this at any point in history? Well, the answer to this question is, of course, no. And yes. I mean, we have not seen this specific scene play out elsewhere in the Bible. However, the entire story of Scripture is a testament to this very idea. God is able to rescue his people from certain death. And he has demonstrated this many times before. The Passover, the, the parting of the Red Sea are just a couple of important examples from the book of Exodus. The implication here is critical. These men are saying, God is more powerful than you, Nebuchadnezzar. And you answer to him, not the other way around. And that brings us to the second part of this incredible statement. And as far as grammatical conjunctions go, a very, very important one. I must admit to you that I thought long and hard about naming this sermon the best but in the Bible. B-U-T, of course. My wife didn't think it was a good idea. She was probably right. But I think you will see my side of things because the importance of the reply, of this part of the men's reply, cannot be overstated. We believe God can and will save us from your hand. They boldly tell Nebuchadnezzar, and here come three of the most important words in this entire chapter. But if not. 
but if not, but if not, we still will not bow down and worship your image. But if not, we still will not replace our allegiance to God with an allegiance to you. But if not, we will count our lives well lived and we will put ourselves in the hands of a most merciful God. Now, why is this part of their statement such a big deal? This has a massive effect on how we consider and live out our own faith. Ultimately, we will be tested and we will experience pain and suffering. There really is no getting around this aspect of life on earth. As the book of Job exclaims, people are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from a fire. And Peter writes in the fourth chapter of his first letter, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Now, some people seem to be able to really lean on their faith and even come out stronger on the other side of such events. And other people's faith in God just gets absolutely crushed by them. What's the difference? But if not, that's the difference. Can we get to a point where we serve and love God, not for the sake of what he gives us or what he does for us, but for the sake of God? Can we love him because he is awesome and mighty and good and everything about who he is and what he has done displays his character and his glory, not because he has protected us from difficulty. Too often, our faith does not survive rough stretches in our lives because we don't enjoy God for who he is. We believe our relationship with him is based on a mutual agreement of comfort and happiness. If God keeps us comfortable and happy, we will love and follow him. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we can't question and wrestle with God over the difficulties in our lives. The Bible's full of such examples. And, of course, God wants us to be in authentic conversation with him. But we also don't want to misunderstand exactly what God is promising us. It is eternal love and forgiveness and fullness of life. It isn't a carefree life with no trials or suffering. Now, if we do have the courage, if we do find the fortitude to stand up to the world, 
Can we expect that its collective heart will be just melted by our steadfastness to God? And it will simply let us off the hook out of pure respect. Not if this story has anything to tell us. Nebuchadnezzar becomes so furious at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's disobedience to him that he orders the furnace to be heated to seven times its original temperature and that they be thrown inside. Don't expect that the powers of this world are just going to roll over because you refuse to play their game. You will quite often be dealt with as a threat to their power because, well, you are. It's at this point that I'd like to highlight a very important theme in the entire book of Daniel, but especially and certainly here in chapter 3. I call it the tale of two kings. You see, in an ironic twist, it's not the three young Hebrews who are engulfed by Nebuchadnezzar's rage. It's his own men who suffer the consequence of his anger. The fire burns up the men who have brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be thrown into the fire. This is what it's like to follow and worship this kind of king, a king of the world, a king of ambition and conquest and control. You are a means to an end, and you are only safe as long as you are useful. Nebuchadnezzar is unwilling to save those even who obey him. And it is his followers who end up being sacrificed to his will. Isn't this so poignant in our day and age as well? So many in our world today seem increasingly bloodthirsty in their quest to gain ultimate power. And nobody is safe from them, not even their biggest supporters. This is not the kind of king you want to follow. This is not the way to true peace. It tries to promote itself that way, though, doesn't it? As the only peaceful solution to your problem. Nebuchadnezzar and the world tell us, don't you dare rock the boat or you'll pay. But follow me and you'll be spared. But it's an illusion. Because that kind of king doesn't care about us. If discarding us and sacrificing us happens as collateral damage to their quest for authority and revenge, so be it. What kind of king should we want to follow instead? For the answer to that question, let's continue and finish our story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tied up, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And it looks like this situation will, in fact, lead to their demise. It's at this moment that Nebuchadnezzar, standing very far away from the furnace, strains his eyes to try to see what is happening. And what he sees, he can hardly believe the three men that are inside the furnace are still visible, seemingly just walking around in there. 
And now, a fourth figure has appeared. Who or what is this? Of course, the text doesn't tell us. Or does it? Nebuchadnezzar exclaims, it looks like a son of the gods. Now, not to get too nerdy on you here with the Hebrew, technically Aramaic here, but the word used for gods, like any old run-of-the-mill everyday gods, Elohim, is the same word used for God, the one true God. Thus, Nebuchadnezzar probably meant to say it the way it's translated here. He meant to exclaim, there's some divine-like or looking being in there. But in doing so, he unknowingly reveals to us the true identity of the fourth figure, the Son of God. Jesus, in pre-incarnate form, has walked into the furnace, not only to rescue these men from the fire, but to rescue them in the fire. And this, my friends, is what the gospel is all about. Jesus says, I will walk with you in the furnace. I will experience all of the pain and suffering that this earth has to offer so that yours will not last. Our God is no stranger to the trials of this world. Jesus is the one who has walked into the eternal fire of suffering so that we might walk out free and unharmed. You know, the good news of Daniel chapter 3, it isn't just that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were spared from death. Because all three of those men will ultimately still one day die. But this daring rescue points us forward to Jesus and his eventual death on the cross, which gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all of us the promise of eternal life so that we might never die. And that good news is the answer to what I think is the biggest question that we all face here this morning. How can we face and endure trials and suffering in our own lives and hope to do it with any kind of courage? Here's the answer. If we believe that all this is true, there is no earthly furnace that can possibly matter. There is no fiery punishment that can shock you into submission 
and force you to bow your knee to all the Nebuchadnezzars in your life. There is no threat of consequence that can quench your faith. This world, it cannot defeat you. It cannot steal your hope. It cannot win. We also now have the definitive answer to our other question this morning. Which king should we follow? Not the king who is consumed by his own arrogance and conceit, but the one who has humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Not the king who forces you to bow down and worship him, but the one who invites you to follow him. And only after giving you the ultimate picture of his love and devotion to you. Not the king who might burn you up as a byproduct of his anger and his quest for power. But the one who climbs into the furnace with you. And the one who has sacrificed himself to save you. Isn't this the kind of king that is worth pledging our allegiance to? Isn't this the kind of king who is worth worshiping? If your heart says yes this morning, would you pray with me? God, we're blown away. Blown away by the incredible nature of your word and your story. Help us to see it with eyes clear enough that we might recognize just what is truly being said in a story like this. Help us to see the magnitude of your love and mercy for us and help our hearts never be the same as a result. We need your spirit to change us, to open our eyes, to get us out of the daily doldrums, the rhythm of life that can so easily distract us and blind us to our reality of our need for you. But I pray for every person here, even those who are not here, God, that you will make that impossible. You will make it to where we must, we must see you and see how much we need you. It is in the incredible name of Christ who has gone into the furnace with us and for us that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.